Art therapy and sport has saved Vera Kurnow's life more than once. Trauma and illness saw the Echuca woman fall into the depths of despair and had her questioning her purpose in life. She has suffered sexual abuse, been forced to flee her home and was bedridden for years because of debilitating chronic illnesses. Vera fought and won against death 17 times. All her life, until she was 38, she asked herself, why me? Now the 46-year-old is embracing that question and using adversity to her advantage. Vera, you grew up with various disabilities. What was that like for you? Yeah, very difficult because most of my disabilities weren't recognised or diagnosed until quite late on in my life. So I spent the good part of my early childhood and adulthood trying to participate in sport at a high level, trying to do everything else that I wanted to do. I've always been a high achiever and so I would push myself well beyond my physical limitations. But regularly ask that question, why can't I do the same thing as everybody else? Why am I struggling to breathe? Why do I run out at the 200 metre mark? Why can't I bend my knees like everybody else? And I didn't get a lot of those answers until quite later on in my life when a lot more things started falling apart. However, what I always understood within that process was that it forced me, as uncomfortable as it was, to look at creative ways to try and get around my issues, to look at ways that I could try and think outside the box to achieve what I wanted to achieve when the normal way wasn't going to work for me because of those limitations. So with your limitations, you were still able to play high-level sport. Explain to me some of, some of what um, you were able to do. Yeah, so my sport of choice was tennis. We grew up in a tennis-mad family. We had a business in tennis. My dad was a coach and I also was a coach myself. How it limited me was that I could bend my knees to a fraction of the level that everyone else could. And that was because of a bone disease called Osgood Flatter's disease. It actually changed the structure of the bones within my knee joints and created intense pain any time I tried to bend into a full squat. Now, as a tennis player, it's really important to be able to get down low when you're playing certain shots. The other issue I had was I had severe asthma, which we knew. The other part that we didn't know until much later was that I had something called vocal cord dysfunction and, in fact, a very severe, rare form of it. And that meant that I couldn't last aerobically like everybody else. So most of the players I was playing against were what we call rally players. They would hit the ball and just run around the court and keep going and keep going and keep going. So moving your player around as much as you could, I would run out of steam. I would run out of puff and I basically would get to a point where I just I had to stop. So I had to lose a point in order to give myself that breathing space to oh, oh, I'll go get my breath back and I'll try and get the next point. So what we did was we developed ways that I could use my game strategy, which I became an excellent serve volley player, because it shortened the length of the point. So although it was very hard initially because I would serve and then I would basically sprint to the net and then try and finish the point as quickly as possible, I got used to that anaerobic way of playing tennis that helped me become a very powerful serve volley player. 
and then it allowed me the time to slowly walk back to the baseline for the next shot where I could then gather my breath back again, ready for the next point. We have a long-standing joke in my family. As Star Wars fans throughout childhood, I am now appropriately known as Darth Vader or sometimes Chewbacca, depending on the symphony of sounds that is my all-too-familiar struggle each evening. And yet, hearing those sounds, I gently remind myself that this means I am still alive. So you kind of worked around and worked with your um, conditions rather than against them. Correct, yeah. It was, it was about finding a way that I could still do what I love with the limitations that we realised I had. And the interesting thing was my, my coach, who happened to also be my father, he was a very well-known tennis coach, he recognised at an early stage that I couldn't run like everybody else. So we'd go on, he used to have um, squads and we'd go on runs together around the park and I could never actually keep going. And initially it was it was a thought of, well, am I just not fit enough? But what became obvious was through all the intense training that I did and all the effort that I was putting in, I just wasn't getting the same results as everybody else. I'd still hit that wall. And he recognised that and helped me to work out a way that we could integrate what became my strength around those areas that were my weaknesses. And so it was about being creative to think of how within the constraints you could still achieve that end goal, which I was eventually able to do very well. Tell me about um, what led up to your coma and then waking up from that when no one expected you to. Yeah. So a coma is a different experience for everybody who goes through one. For me, I had just received my diagnosis of this rare form of vocal cord dysfunction. I was included in a new clinical trial which required injecting Botox directly into a vocal cord to paralyse it to keep the airway open. For me, I had spent a good part of the prior seven years being told that death was not far away, nobody could help me. In fact, the term that the specialist down at the Austin had told me was you have what we call difficult to treat asthma, not responsive to conventional treatment. And until I received that diagnosis for the vocal cord dysfunction, that was my life going in and out of emergency not being able to walk more than three steps at a time without collapsing. I'd had to leave my business and life really wasn't any sort of quality um, that I was really living at all. So 
so it was a good thing to get the diagnosis. It was very promising to find out about this clinical trial and I would travel down to Clayton at Monash to get this treatment. However, when I got that first needle, something went wrong. And it wasn't anything wrong with the treatment itself. My body had a reaction in that my vocal cords were already very sensitive. They were already under a lot of stress and traumatised from this condition and many years of vocal cord attacks. And within 24 hours, my vocal cords had swollen up so much that I was unable to breathe. And I found myself driving back home. My dad was driving me back home from Clayton. We got to about Rochester and we both knew that I was on my way to my graduation and it felt way too early for both of us. And so my dad managed to get me to the Echuca Hospital where the doctors all knew me there quite well at that point. They were aware of the diagnosis and I ended up being put into a coma because I was literally passing away in front of their eyes. And being put in a coma when you're an asthmatic and then to have vocal cord dysfunction as well is a very difficult and unstable situation for the body to have to try and recover from. So it was the coma that I wasn't supposed to survive. I did survive and they all told me that it was sheer determination. And I knew going into that coma I could feel my body slipping away. I knew that this was that point in my life where if I was going to survive this, I had to do it from within myself. I had to have a desire to live that was so strong that my body could overcome this while I intellectually was not there to help it. And so waking up from that coma days later, my family finding out that, yes, they'd been told to say their last goodbyes. And here I was, not only waking up, they took the tube out, I started breathing on my own. And although I'd had many other near-death experiences up until that point, waking up from that one, everything changed for me. My perspective on life changed yet again, but in the most significant way that I'd had any epiphany to that point in time. And I always tell people, the blue of the sky had never looked so blue and the green of the trees had never been so green and the warmth of the sun had never felt so comforting and so warm as when I came out of that coma. Wow. Yeah, it was a very profound journey to go through and it is something that it still touches me emotionally. And that's a good thing because what I learned in that moment is that I have so much more to offer, both myself in knowing who I am, my true authentic self, but also in how I can help to spread courage and hope and let people know whatever adversity they're going through. You have a choice as to how you're going to help yourself get through it. You have a choice as to how you're going to view the moment that you're in. 
and understanding that you actually have a choice about that, that that language inside your head, instead of saying, I'm dying, saying, I will do this. On top of all, all this, all these conditions that you've suffered from, um, mm. you're a sexual assault survivor. How has that affected you personally and impacted on your life? Surviving domestic violence and sexual assault is, again, one of those experiences that I hold close to my heart. At the time when I was going through the trauma of those events, it became my identity. And I, excuse me, and I learned through going through support groups once I'd gotten out of that situation, I learned to reconnect to myself. And as somebody who's gone through sexual assault, many people who've gone through that experience are familiar with the disassociation that is a natural safety response for ourselves. We disassociate from our body because the trauma that is happening physically is so intense and so unbelievable and so shocking and so painful that to protect our emotional self, to protect our intellectual self, we often disassociate from that. So it's like we're not really there while it's happening. We become very numb to it. And in fact, certain aspects of the trauma even get forgotten until a later point in time when you can allow yourself the space to recount those experiences to then heal from them. So for me, recovering from that trauma was one of the most important ways and I would never recommend anybody go through recovery without professional help. It was one of the most important ways for me to learn what really mattered to me about myself. And when you go through something like sexual assault, it breaks you down at your core. It strips back everything that you think you know about yourself and it leaves you bare. And from that bareness, you have the ability to layer back in what's important to you to discover who you are, what your core values are, and to realise that we are resilient. There is so much that we can do, and as terrible as it is going through those experiences, coming out the other end, there is so much opportunity for personal growth. There is so much opportunity to learn about yourself and what really matters to you in life. And so for me, I lost my voice the first time that I went through what I term as the, the first violent rape that I suffered through. Mm -hmm. I couldn't verbalise what happened for a long time. When I went through recovery, um, I was in a beautiful tribe of women who'd gone through domestic violence and sexual assault, run by an art therapist. And I tapped into my creative artistic side, which I hadn't done for a long time. And what I discovered was that I was able to communicate what had happened to me in a visual context. For me, that opened the door in a safe environment where I felt protected to be able to explore those emotions and share those experiences with other people who understood, which is a very important part of the recovery process.
to be around people who really do understand what it's like to go through that process. Through doing that, I then found that I could write. And through writing, I then found my voice. So the second time that I lost my voice, which was waking up from that coma, there was a two-year period I had no voice going through those treatments to keep myself alive. And we didn't know if I was going to ever get my voice back. Luckily, I did. So now I use it. <laughs> but but um, I, I did a lot of creative work during those times because visual communication became the way that I not only explored those feelings for myself, I also allowed to share that with other people. And what I discovered was because the artwork that I create are so intuitive and so based on emotion and connection, even without knowing the backstory, people would see my work and be touched and, and feel things and be affected and say, oh, this makes me feel like this. You know, And for me, that helped me to realise that through the adversity, through the ugliness of all of the things that had happened, I could create beauty. And that gave me a real sense of empowerment to have the ability to do that and also to open the door for other people to share through that experience. Mm. Because, I mean, going through sexual abuse and that kind of trauma, you could quite easily go the other way, um, mm-hmm. but you've managed to to come out the other side. Um, do you think art was a big part of that? Yes, it definitely was. And if I hadn't have gone to that group, and it hadn't been run by an art therapist, I'm not sure if I would have gotten to where I did today. In fact, I'm not sure if I would have truly recovered. And something that I often share with people who have gone through sexual assault or other forms of physical trauma, the brain is very powerful, and what we tell ourselves in our language is a massive part of the equation. But there are certain things in physical trauma that I believe through going through the experience of art therapy that we need to allow our body to actually speak for us. And when I physically couldn't get those words out, actually allowing my body to do that through that form, and it didn't didn't matter being an artist or not, there were so many women in that group, and of course I won't know names, there were so many people in that group, including myself, that drew stick figures. and you know, just scribble on a page. It wasn't actually about the end result. It was about the process, the process of healing and the processing of essentially allowing our body to speak of those traumas and to release it. And that was the important part. So for me, art was a huge part of my recovery journey and it's now become a huge part of my life. And sport's been a big part of your recovery too. How yeah. did you go from being morbidly obese to winning championships and a state level in uh, in bowls? Yeah, that's a, a really interesting journey. So recovering from that coma, um, it took me quite a long time for my body to recover. And I spent two whole years from the, the first day I picked up a lawn bowl because my son was actually bowling in the um, junior squad at the Campasti Cannon. And I would sit there and I could barely walk, you know, 
more than five, ten steps without having to sit down. I was I was still so ill and morbidly obese because of the amount of years and massive doses of cortisone that I'd been on and the fact that I was so well I was not able to be active like I was used to being. Tennis was out of the question <laughs> as a result. But I was watching my son play lawn bowls and I thought, you know, if I can manage to get myself up to a point where I can walk, then I can play lawn bowls. I couldn't bend properly, so I got an arm. There's these things called a bowling arm that you can get. And so it helps people with um, back issues or knee issues like myself who can't actually bend down and do the normal bowling technique. So I got a bowling arm. And I started bowling every single day. The first time I started, I probably bowled down eight bowls, walked up the other end and back, and that was it. I was done for the day. I needed to go home and rest, and I was exhausted. Working up every single day, and this is one of the things that I often talk to people about, life is about consistency. And every single day I went and I would throw down some more bowls because I loved sports. I couldn't play my first love, which was tennis anymore. Lawn bowls, I discovered, is a fantastic sport. It's challenging, intellectually difficult. Um, There are so many aspects of it, so many skills to learn. And I just went straight into, oh, my gosh, I love this sport. I'll be playing this for the rest of my life. Because no matter what my physical capacity was, there were ways, again, that I could work around still being part of that sport. So every single night I went out there and I just consistently built up my stamina, I built up my skills and before I'd even been doing it for two years I won the Lady Singles Championship and the Mixed Doubles Championship at Lama Bowl Club and a lot of people were like, where's this lady come from? <laughs> because I was at work during the day and then I was there at, at, the, um, at the club bowling between quite often 6 to 9 p.m. at night. So people weren't seeing me there. (laughs) So they were like, oh, wow, like, you know, because I was working during the day, I wasn't going and playing all the competitions with the ladies or anything. But I was there. I I was there bowling every single day. And for me, it was just a matter of I really enjoy this. This allows me to improve on my stamina, my fitness as my treatments were starting to work. I got stronger and stronger. And I really found that competitive determination that has served me so well in every aspect of my life, including being the reason I survived that coma. I embrace that these days. So instead of looking at my, my, my competitiveness and saying, oh, you know, some people say that might make me arrogant or all sorts of different things, I actually embrace it these days because I know that in my heart I care for people, in my actions I care for people and in how I spread my message I care for people but I also embrace that determination because that is the part of me that's allowed me to make the most of all of these difficult situations I've had to overcome. You must miss it. (laughs) I do. I haven't rolled a bowl for about seven and a half months. (laughs) I do. I miss it a lot. Um, I miss it a lot. And and I'm looking forward to going back out there when I can. Um, uh, I was set to – I did win the silver medal um, with the state women's um, um, 
championships as well and I had a massive year that year and I was all set um, to play another mixed final this year and, and of course COVID hit so we've all had to postpone that um, but I was also gearing up to, to trial again for the this uh, state arm bowls which was going to be over in Perth this year and I was pretty confident <laughs> that I was going to do okay in that trial this year because I'd improved so much on the year before so unfortunately, that that's not going to happen this year. There's always next year, yes. and and life is like that. You know, sometimes life throws us these curveballs, puts us back for a little bit. And if you can look at the longer future, you know, look at well, if it doesn't happen this year, I've got next year. Everything I've done to this point, I've still done. Nothing, nothing, nothing of that will change. All of my achievements will still stay, and I just pick it up where I can. And in the meantime, you've started this Why Me movement and the Why Me podcast. Tell me about that. Yeah, so the Why Me movement was technically started back when I woke up from that coma. However, with the way that life goes, I've only actually had the opportunity to start the movement probably this year um, when COVID hit. Because I'm not bowling for hours every day and going to the gym, I've had a lot of extra time and um, I basically said, okay, now's the time. I also had not been 100% public with my journey up to that point and I decided now is the time, if ever in my life, I need to be free to be completely 100% myself in the public eye, not just you know, in speaking engagements with the groups of people in the room, but literally out there. And so I made that choice. I have never felt more free in my life. And it was the perfect timing for me to really get the YME movement going. The YME podcast is all about sharing people's stories of adversity and how they've overcome it and and sharing that hope, sharing the stories of courage and determination and going against the odds and coming out the other side with beautiful stories and lessons of what people have been able to achieve. And so through the the podcast, that is what I do. And I am reaching people all across the globe, literally just about every country you can think of. And it's, it's a beautiful experience for me. And what I'm finding is allowing people the space to talk about those defining moments in their life it's having a huge impact even at the level of the people that I'm interviewing. Um, I'm so excited for the podcast launch because so many more people are going to be able to hear these stories and feel touched themselves. And it's, it's really going to impact so many people in knowing that there's always someone who cares. There's always someone out there who's been through stuff that you can relate to, to know that you're not alone. And having people understand is a big part of recovery from any sort of trauma or adversity. And the other thing that I like about the podcast series is that adversity comes in all different shapes, sizes and forms. So it's not about comparing one person's adversity to another. Adversity, even if it was exactly the same thing that happened to us at two different times in our lives, we would respond differently because of where we're at at that point in our life. So it's really all about the journey and how people think outside the box 
and discover through some of their darkest moments in their life what their true life purpose is and how to really connect to themselves on that deep level. I'm really looking forward to, to hearing the podcast, Vera. Um, so just finally, um, do you have a message or advice for other people who are struggling with their physical and mental health? Absolutely. I My advice is share. A lot of the time when we're in that space, it doesn't feel easy to share what's going on. And sometimes that is mixed up with having a low self-worth when we're in that moment. And some of that, again, is tied up to past traumas and, and things that might have fed into that. Reach out. There are so many people willing to help. There's professional organisations that are there. This is what they do. People are trained to understand and help and direct us to who can help us the best. Reach out to people who are near you. Reach out to people you know. Nobody's going to judge you. It's about having the belief that you are worthy and that someone is willing to help you get through this. You are not alone. That's probably the most important thing. You are not alone. Your exact circumstance is yours, but I can guarantee you someone else will have gone through a similar enough situation to be able to understand and help you through it.